it is hard for a lot of folks to know what they want. If I am not good at feeling a thing, it will be hard for me to witness other people doing that thing. The discomfort is connected, right? And so if I'm not comfortable when I feel rejected because I feel so ashamed about myself, then it will be really hard to sit with you when you're feeling rejected and I'm either seeing your shame or I'm assuming you have a lot of shame. In my lifetime, I will likely hurt a lot of people, not on purpose, but just by being me. Just by being true to me, I will likely disappoint and displease and hurt. And that truth, it's not something that many people talk about, even though we live it all the time. We live it every day. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. My guest today is B.K. Chan, an award-winning sex and emotional literacy educator in Toronto, Canada. We are speaking about rejection resilience, which I think is a really wonderful follow-up to my conversation with Jamila, in which we spoke about having the courage to go after really your best life, whether that means your best orgasm, your best relationship, your best career, and also having the courage to express ourselves and stand in our authenticity and our truth. And when we do that, and when we ask for what we want, we risk rejection. And so BK Chan is talking about rejection resilience and why it's such an important muscle for all of us to strengthen, both so that we can be able to receive rejection gracefully and also feel okay when we need to deliver rejection. I think it's a an essential conversation to introduce into Um, discourse on consent. And my conversation with her really has changed my perspective and helped me reflect on where I'm holding back out of fear. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation. She gives a lot of tools for how to navigate rejection when it comes up and just how to think about it in a more um, complex and nuanced way. BK is known for her accessible style and sense of humor. She integrates curriculum content into stories and theory into practice. She works with individuals, groups, and organizations, and trains professionals across disciplines. Planned Parenthood of Toronto honored her for her work in sexual health by naming her the Service Provider of the Year, and she was honored in 2017 as one of 30 Chinese-Canadian women of distinction in Ontario. BK is currently working on a series of books and videos about feelings and justice, and her course on emotional intelligence was released in 2018 and is available to the public. You can follow her work on fluidexchange.org, which we will link to in the show notes. So enjoy the conversation, and I hope that it emboldens you to take big risks in your life. Hi, BK. Thank you so much for joining me on Strippers and Sages. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me, Leanne. I'm so excited, too. (laughs) Um, So you are rather well known for your work on rejection resilience, which is uh, one of the things that got me excited to talk to you in the first place. So I would love to just dive in with that as a concept. Like, what does that actually mean? And how did that become something that you... Uh, decided was so important to give attention to? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean? I think of it as uh, rejection resilience as a 
one of the skills um, that is so important that most of us don't get a chance to uh, develop except in the worst moments um, of how to actually uh, move through an experience of rejection uh, in a way that feels like it's aligned with our values. It, that is, uh, when when I look back, I don't regret everything that I did, you know, um, and that to be able to uh, continue making choices in life that are maybe sometimes scary or risky or makes um, me feel vulnerable and with the possibility of rejection, but continue to choose those things because those things are also what brings me a lot of fulfillment and joy. And so I think of the the, the resilience as like a, a whole set of skills, including all those things. Mm. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about rejection and why it's important within the context of what the show is about and thinking both uh, to be able to ask for what you want and to voice desires, to be able to receive rejection gracefully um, and uh, and to be able to deliver a rejection yes. gracefully. And I want to get into all aspects of that. So when you talk about the importance, you just mentioned, you know, that that's where the fulfillment comes. Can you talk a little bit more about that as an idea of why on the other on the other end of rejection or the things that we are most likely scared to be rejected about? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I it's... It makes so much sense to me that the places that we want acceptance are the places that we risk rejection, right? I I, I don't really risk rejection from uh, a school, you know, that I don't want to go to. Um, and I don't face rejection from people that I don't want to speak to or be close to. So um, it's it, it goes hand in hand, it feels, um, rejection and the possibility of rejection. Um together with what I really desire, what I really want in my life. Um, all the things that are important to me actually put me at some risk uh, of rejection. And the rejection might be, you know, actually somebody saying, no, I don't feel the same way. Or it could just be things don't turn out exactly the way I was hoping. You know, um, often people feel rejected if, let's say, a really exciting, elaborate plan that they had built and they, they felt very excited about um, doesn't turn out quite the same way or the people involved are not so excited about their surprise party. That moment of disappointment is that kind of dis the feeling of disappointed, um, of, of um, feeling let down and so forth. They're really close to the feeling of rejection. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's one and the same. And how I got actually into this work is uh, from doing uh, consent work. So many you know, of my colleagues and I, as sex educators, were asked to do consent work, uh, to teach uh, people of all ages what consent is, what consent culture means, and how do we make it happen? How do we you know, ask for consent? How do we um, answer to invitations uh, of consent? Um, and then I realized, you know, the sex educator uh, is there in the room um, when I'm telling people what to do, what they're supposed to do and what the rules are and um, what their rights are and so forth. But I'm not there when they're going to do the scariest thing, 
Um, and so many people don't ask for consent. Uh, I mean, for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is I've not done it before and it's scary and I don't want to get rejected. If I ask, then I open myself to being answered. So if I don't ask, then I don't open myself as much to being answered. And so many of the sexual scripts that we say are problematic, right? Like just keep going until somebody says no, or like if they're quiet, that means it's all right. All those things are, of course, connected to entitlement and to like problematic sexual um, norms, but they're also really rooted in um, do everything you can to avoid that moment of being rejected. So I, I really wanted to say, okay, I, I want to be in the room with you a little bit more. I want to support you a little bit more through the hardest thing that I'm asking you to do. The, the idea of entitlement is something that I've certainly experienced before, definitely growing up and with partners. And I think you know, you're really hitting it on the nose of, um, I've also just been thinking about how there's always a shadow behind something. So like what you just said, if somebody feels a sense of entitlement to sex or pleasure or someone else's body or something, right? That there's actually masking, that mm -hmm. entitlement is masking a vulnerability yeah. or a need that hasn't been met or something. And I think that's a really powerful concept. Um, where do you think that feeling of entitlement within our culture and particularly in this context, like how has that been conditioned in relationships? Um, so many ways. Uh, I mean, the obvious ones are, you know, like gender conditioning, um, you know, expectations of what my life would be like as a certain gender and what how people will interact with me uh, in their genders. You know, so the schools of masculinity often um, will not only sell me this idea that it's my job to go get what I need, um, but also like I work hard and, you know, you got to keep going and persistence is rewarded. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the obvious part, but less obvious is also, um, you know, messages like uh, two people vying for the same person, you know, even Disney and all those you know, kids oriented kinds of stories um, are focused on the people who desire. They don't really say, well, let's let that person decide. So, you know, like long time ago and new stories, they're very similar. Like um, it's all about the person who wants to initiate. And so the initiator often gets privileged in the story. And then the person who gets to respond to the initiator is um, sometimes, you know, less of a subject, less of, you know, more of an object by that, I mean. Um, and less of, of the character, right? Not as much, of, it's not as much that person's story. So gender conditioning, definitely. Um, sexual ideas about um, who wants sexual connection and who doesn't. And so if you're the person who wants it, then you have to go get it because the other person is about to lose something, you know? So if I'm trying to talk somebody into losing something, I have to, you know, uh, be devious or smart or I have to trick them into it or I have to, you know, um, pay out a certain amount of money or I have to buy dinner or I have to like get them drunk. So this idea that um, is a trade, you know, and this assumption right, that, it's that, transactional that it's transactional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those things feed into entitlement, too, because once I've 
done my part of the transaction, then I deserve whatever's out the outcome I'm expecting. So those things are all, I think, connected. Um, but other things I think are even more subtle, like, um, you know, if you really believe in love and the beauty of the love story and the fairy tale, and if your love is ardent enough, and if your love is strong enough, then it overcomes anything. So things are actually like kind of romantic, um, actually feeds into a kind of entitlement. Um, and it's supposed to happen. Like love is supposed to happen and connection and beauty and, and sexual, sexual things are just supposed to happen. The reality is so many people are lonely. The reality is so many people are getting so much less touch and connection and sex and sexual activity than they want. But it doesn't seem like those stories don't get told. They don't get told on Instagram. They don't get told in movies. They don't get told as much. So there is also a cultural idea that everyone is getting something. And so I should get it too. So talking about, you know, you say it's so important to confront and experience rejection and to strengthen that as a muscle. What are ways that people can actively do that to kind of, what does rejection resilience training look like? What's the life gym? Yeah. Um, I think for one is to recognize um, that there's sort of a cultural norm around rejection, first of all. You know, um, just like there is a bit of a cultural norm around loneliness. It's one of the things that are very hard to talk about and that people are encouraged, myself included, to call it something else. Um, so either to block it and not feel it. And and uh, and when we it does surface as a kind of energy, we call it something else. So um, rejections, disguises are like anger. You know, I'm pissed. Um, I want revenge. Um, and it also can be disguised as like nothing ever works out for me versus like, I'm really sad and hurt in this moment. Um, and so uh, I think recognizing that that's the norm and that because of that norm, many of us have not actually had a lot of training feeling rejection. That, you know, from when we were little, something doesn't work out, it might be called something else. So in the same way that, you know, um, many people who have not been uh, encouraged to feel vulnerable. And whenever they do feel vulnerable, they've been allowed to, let's say, be angry or let's say be blank, you know, be numb. Um, that when rejection surfaces, many of us don't necessarily know that we're feeling rejected and feeling disappointed and feeling hurt and feeling small and feeling insecure and feeling worried and feeling, you know, bleak and feeling um, help, helpless and despair. Um, and just really, really wanting something and really facing the thing that's not there. So recognition. And then the other is to become more comfortable with that thing that is so uncomfortable. So the thing that we've avoided feeling, we've been helped away from feeling, we've disguised as something else, we've called something else. You know, 
when it comes down to it, that thing is actually very uncomfortable. So I didn't didn't take you know a lot of encouragement for me to try to not feel um, rejected when you know in my in my life training. Um, and so becoming more comfortable means like when it surfaces, can I try to feel it a little bit before I do the thing I do that stops me from feeling it before I'm enraged, before I start kicking whatever's close by, before I go into the story of nothing ever goes well for me, I just have bad luck, um, or before I blame it on something else, you know, uh, this kind of people are terrible. This school sucks. Who wants to get on the volleyball team anyway? You know, I hate volleyball. Before any of that can happen, can I feel it a little bit? So how do we do that? How do we actually feel the thing that we cannot feel, that we find really hard to feel? And I really connect to that challenge because, like, personally speaking, I'm a master at not feeling uh, the things that I'm not good at feeling. This is why this practice is interesting to me at all. Um, And so sometimes it's through the body. And so when I want to feel... And very few people will say, yeah, I want to feel rejected. I want to go and feel it. But, you know, for whatever reason, you might want to to feel it so that you might process this feeling instead of letting it get stuck, you know. Um, I might put my body in a way that looks like rejection, right? So becoming smaller instead of big, instead of like up and like front and like... um, vengeful and and ready to attack, I might actually have to relax my body to be more defenseless, right? If my issue is being all defended. Um, Curling up, fetal position. Um, I know this group of um, uh, feminists in South Korea who do this really cool practice, which is that they get together and instead of like sitting around and doing a check-in or whatever business of the day might be, they huddle together and they make crying sounds, the sounds of crying, wailing sometimes or sobbing. And people are not sobbing, but then they do it. And within a few minutes, everyone is sobbing for real. Hmm. And I know this only because I met uh, a woman who was part of the circle. I don't know any more than that. Um, And she's since not been in my life. So but what I learned from that Im- image, that you know, story that she shared with me is that like the body can lead. There's so much that my body actually needs to sob about, but I'm kind of blocked. And so going there actually can help. It's similar to you know, people uh, practicing all kinds of body wisdoms will like change and contort their face into the shape of a smile. And that somehow, you know, brings biochemical and biological and physiological changes, right? Um, It's very similar. So the body can lead. That's one. Another thing that we can do is to actually ask people who are good at feeling rejected. When you feel rejected, like, what the hell are you talking about? What do you feel? What are you saying to yourself? It can really help. And um, it's almost like studying. Mm. Um, and then what what is helpful is also to uh, allow myself to be rejected in small ways. 
to seek it out almost to seek it out Mm -hmm. but in small ways Mm -hmm. in small ways so that the burden that I have to then carry is a smaller one and I might be uh, better at trying to feel it um, so I was interviewed about this uh, about, I don't know, three weeks ago. Um, and I was sitting in my car uh, talking to the interviewer and I had left the lights on. And so by the end of our interview, my my battery was dead. Uh, I happened to have a terrible car battery. And um, then my next, you know, 20 minutes was spent flagging other cars down, asking them for a boost. And I got rejected by eight different people. And I was feeling quite desperate. Like I was feeling like, come on, you got to help me. And I felt like pathetic and I felt stupid. You know, that's what I'm talking about in terms of feeling rejected. I didn't, I mean, I also went to my brain that says like Toronto sucks. People who live in Toronto are like heartless and they don't help. I went there, you know, that's part of my coping. But what I was really feeling was like alone and stupid and um, regretful that I left the lights on and wish like I could just take it back. You know, all those things that are really hard to feel. But that was like an easier rejection than others, right? So seeing that as an opportunity really helps. I love that. You know, I think it's been something I've been thinking about since I had Meg Saxby on the show because she's the one who first mentioned you and your I love work. Meg. And yes, shout out to Meg. <laughs> I met Meg in an airport terminal and the next day she came over to my house in Santa Fe to do an interview. Of course. <laughs> yeah, very generous. Um, but so I think it's been in my mind. And so I've been watching and there's a couple of things I've been thinking. One is that it's so not personal, right? Like at first I was like, wow, I have this pathology. Like I, I'm really scared of rejection, right? And this will happen a lot when I will kind of get honest or insightful about fears or things that I'm feeling. And then I'll first go through this phase of thinking that it's, all, you know, I'm the only one on the planet that possibly like has to deal with this yeah. challenging human experience. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is actually a super universal human experience. And then I started to watch it. And it's really amazing how often it can come up in places where you're like, why is that even, you know, inviting a friend to do a thing or asking, can I borrow this whatever? And I'll sometimes like track it for myself. Oh, I've asked like for this many things and now Mm. this, you know, and then I was recently having to negotiate for a job. And then that was, that's a whole other level of, you know, being, feeling that you need to be courageous enough. Yes. The, the more comfortable you are with the rejection, the more you're going to ask for. Yeah. And so in all of these ways, it just got me thinking about how important this work is that you're doing and this conversation is um, in all of these realms. So I, I do, I love the idea of like making it this game in some way of like, you know, small ways that you can start to strengthen the muscles so that when you're in these moments that feel that the stakes are kind of higher Mm. either with an intimate partner or with a boss that you have to have a difficult conversation that you're really resourced enough to do that. Um, So in thinking about the consent conversation, I want to stay on the receiving end of rejection a little bit longer. What are the kind of tools? I know you work with college kids as well as adults. And when you talk about this, like, 
I think the another thing I'm thinking about that is this idea that rejection isn't harm and it's mm-hmm. not personal, not just in the way I was just speaking, but also that receiving rejection is mm-hmm. not that it's so rarely about you. I also know this because I am a theater director, so I go through audition right. processes a lot where I'm casting people. And every time I go through a casting process, I'm like, okay, for my own self, let me remember that it, it's never about me, <laughs> right? right? Like this person is amazing. They're just not right for it yes. or whatever. Yes. So how, how do you um, teach people to depersonalize rejection? And then particularly in the conversation around consent to, um, to be resilient around that and like, you know, develop that resiliency that we're talking about. I think one of the things is to understand that it feels personal, right? Like to, to be able to say this feels personal versus not say it and just assume that it is right. And so to say this feels personal and and to be able to articulate that is step one, because identifying that something feels personal is uh, really important to depersonalizing it. Um, and something that I had learned from nonviolent communication that I, I still use all the time is that in nonviolent communication, um, at least with the, the groups that I studied with, um, the list of feelings that are available for you to, you know, choose from to name how you're feeling, it excludes certain certain uh, feelings. Um, Words like, I feel attacked, or I feel misunderstood, or I feel like cornered, are not included because um, they're story feelings. There are stories about the other person. And so what do I say instead of attacked? I have to say I'm defensive. That's how I'm feeling. And that might be because you're attacking me, fair enough. Or it might be, um, I believe you're attacking me it feels personal. So I'm feeling defensive. And that has been so illuminating, right? So that I can feel defensive regardless uh, whether you're attacking me or not. So that's one. Um, To depersonalize, I think, uh, sexual uh, rejection particularly, I think we have to take apart this idea that sexual the, um, like sexual invitation and sexual acceptance is based on merit. It is um, not, you know, a, a score. It's not if you're a 10, then nobody rejects you. Um, and nobody has a good time with, you know, a two. I think that is so harmful, that practice of calling people numbers. Of course, I mean, just the idea of like grading anyone but it's so obvious that people who are super hot and famous and rich, who most people would think of as tens, would make terrible partners for maybe you, maybe me, you know? So the idea that sexual attraction and so forth are compatibilities, just like, you know, when you're casting for a role, it is about compatibility is so important. So I think stories about compatibilities, about real connection between people. And by real, I don't mean like you have to love each other for, you know, 55 years. I mean, you know, even transcendent, beautiful, brief sexual exchanges are about, so they are personal, right? They are about um, what happens between 
those two people. And so I often will say just that. And sometimes it's the first time somebody's heard it, that um, sexual acceptance and sexual interest is not an evaluation of you. To flip the conversation now, um, there's being able to receive rejection gracefully. And I'm also thinking about consent when it's so great when the response is something like, thank you for taking care of yourself, right? That I think is a standard response that is being taught that I'm sure there are others that are also as good or better, but you know, it's one that is really nice to receive because it's really hard to deliver a rejection as well. And when the yes. response is immediately, thank you for taking care of yourself, it actually like softens it for both people, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. And acknowledges that it is impersonal in that way. Yeah. Um, why is it so hard for us to reject? So not only to receive, mm. but to then speak our truth when that involves letting someone down. Mm-hmm. And and I want to say a word about the the you know the the script. I yeah. I also ask people to make an exit plan because in that moment of rejection, whatever the rejection might be, um, it is really hard to do the thing that would be eventually aligned with your values. You know, it's much more likely we go into panic and then attack or and then just like try to disappear. Um, And so if you have an exit plan, uh, it is much more likely you will do that. So if your exit plan is thank you for taking care of yourself, you can say that even though the rest of you is turning blue and feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to find a hole and cry within that hole, you know. Um, And so really simple ones when I talk to, you know, uh, college folks, thanks, have a good night, you know, like just know that that's your plan so that you don't have to scramble in that moment for something else. You're much more likely to do something less aligned with who you are and who you want to be. Um, yeah, well, and even something like that, it's, I think this also becomes interesting when there's a whole spectrum too. So a rejection is also not no absolutely door shut in your face, right? But sometimes it's no, not this particular thing right now. Yes, I want to keep relating with you in that way. And so I wonder also about an exit plan that allows you to like tend to your emotional reaction while still staying engaged and, and present to like what is available. Yes. So that would be like the thing after the exit plan, um, to take care of yourself. That's a really big one. So the care part is really important because if we continue to go without care, um, there's only reason to not feel it. There's only reason to continue to hide from it, continue to attack other people uh, in lieu of taking care of myself. Um, And so that and um, taking care allows them us to remain open to listen. Um, But also expect that for a moment, your ears will be shut. Your heart will be shut. Your eyes will be shut because you're like trauma, experiencing shock, did not expect, feel terrible. You know, you will return, but in order to return, you just need to actually shut down for a moment. So, and then the question of what, why is it so hard for people to reject others? Receiving rejection is really hard and delivering rejection can Mm -hmm. feel really awful as well. Yes, I think, um, it does for many people. And it's the reason a lot of weird things happen when people have to 
deliver bad news of any kind. So delivering bad news is really scary for people, partly because witnessing somebody else in pain is really hard. So that's one of the earliest parts of training as um, a counselor or a psychotherapist is actually being able to be with somebody who's going through an emotion that is hard to witness. Now, what's hard to witness will depend on the person. But the likelihood is that if I am not good at feeling a thing, it will be hard for me to witness other people doing that thing. Mm -hmm. The discomfort is connected, Mm -hmm. right? And so if I'm not comfortable when I feel rejected because I feel so ashamed about myself, then it will be really hard to sit with you when you're feeling rejected and I'm either seeing your shame or I'm assuming you have a lot of shame and it's oozing all over the place. And I just want you to mop it up and get better and cheer up already. I'm just wanting, you know, um, for you to do the thing I would do. So witnessing someone else's pain is really hard. It requires us to be present and not like fix it right away, at least Uh, at least not right away. It requires us to acknowledge that this person's feeling this thing. Add to that, um, I think they're feeling this because of me, or I know they're feeling this because of me, then that's a really like perfect storm of, I'm going to do everything to get away from that moment. And of course, I too swim in the same water that says, Rejection is personal. I'm a mean person. I'm a bad person. If I am not pleasing you or you're not happy with me or you feel bad about yourself, I'm mean and I'm bad. Now, I think we teach this also to people, um, to kids, uh, when we say don't hurt people's feelings in a very reductive and simple way. And I think... Uh, adults assume that kids know you mean like don't hurt someone on purpose right but um, most of the people I speak to uh, have trouble discerning oh right like don't hurt people on purpose so in my lifetime I will likely hurt a lot of people not on purpose but just by being me Just by being true to me, I will likely disappoint and displease and hurt. And that truth, um, I wish I knew when I was little. Yeah, it's not something that many people talk about, even though we live it all the time. Live it every day. Um, Yeah, and, and this idea of being nice and not mean, it's really not helpful. Totally. I love how you're pointing out like the root of it. And I'm thinking about, you know, it makes me happy when parents, I know parents, a handful of parents who don't make their kids hug and kiss if they don't want to, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a nice little shift I'm seeing. But otherwise, it's so often like, go and give this person, go say hi, go give them a hug, go give them a kiss. And it's like, there's no agency or choice in that. And if you don't, then it's very apparent that the person and your parent, everybody's let down, right? right? Like you've done something wrong, you're not being kind. And yeah, I can, I think that conditioning is really um, profound and insidious. And what makes it so, what makes 
what allows so many people to go through with non-consensual sex, mm -hmm. right? Or to act and because they think that they are being nice or that to speak their truth or to reject or to stop or to say that they don't like this, any of that is actually a reflection of them being a bad person or selfish. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was growing up like the hardest thing for me was that feeling of, oh, I'm letting this person down. Yeah. Like they have a want or a desire or an expectation. And if I say no, like I'm disappointing them. Yeah. And the feeling of disappointing someone was so awful, yeah. right? And got very compounded too with an idea of being selfish yeah. or anything like that. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, that's, you know, how in, rejecting and receiving rejection were sometimes confusing the feeling of rejection for something else like anger um the the act of setting a boundary for example or telling your truth and witnessing the res reaction to that being pain is um by mistake equal to um i am hurting you on purpose and i don't care about you Right. I necessarily don't care if I do anything that you're hurt by. So that conflation is also deadly, right? It's because those are not the same. And so after I've, you know, set my boundary and you're hurt and you feel rebuffed, you know, if you come back to me by saying, I guess you don't care about me. So many people in that moment then acquiesce, then say, Oh, no, I do. Okay, fine. Right. Because I feel so bad already the moment you push back. Yeah. So it's just it's just an untrue story that care or that you matter means you never get hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like, well, I wonder then what is the education or um, training that can help us all as a society and help young people not go down that path of conflation? Um. I think in allowing those things to coexist is is already huge. You know, like you failed this test and I'm really disappointed and I love you and we're going to sit down and talk about how uh, you're going to do better because either I'm going to help you or somebody else is going to help you or, you know, we're going to figure out. So, you know, a parent being angry with a child um, is often in in the cultures and this communities and the the circles that I'm familiar with so often equated with I'm going to disconnect from you mm. because you don't matter you're bad right um mm. and so how do we continue to say I love you and I'm so mad at you I love you and you disappointed me I love you and you broke the rules or you broke our agreement um I care about you as a person and I don't want to do that thing you just suggested right. i find you very sexually attractive and i don't didn't enjoy what we did last night right like to be able to have these truths coexist is really not that complicated but for many people it's um it's a but like i i've i find you sexy but Right. I didn't have a good time. And I too, I'm a bit confused about it. Right. So the, but 
really tells the story mm-hmm. that our mm-hmm. our truths don't our con seemingly contradictory truths have a hard time existing together um and i think that has to do with you know like maybe western thought the way we live maybe i don't know i don't know oh totally like there's no there's not room for a both and right we love we love our binaries and yeah. polarization and the absolutes and i think a lot of young people and adults too go through thinking that there's a script as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. so that there's some there's a pre-written script about how it, things are going to go mm-hmm. and there's these codes that i've already agreed to right so like if i've invited you over on a saturday night oops i've already consented to right. sexual intercourse right. right and like oops i can't change my mind about that now or whatever you have an impression and i there's that i think coming from that feeling of oh i don't want to disappoint it's like the privileging of someone else's reality over your own as yeah. well that I would often feel when I was younger, like, okay, well, I don't really want to participate in hookup culture. That seems really weird and scary to me. I don't think I'm super into casual sex, but that's like what we're doing. <laughs> that's right. like what it is to be 24 in New York City right now, right. you know? And so that, um, what I think, how I think this connects to everything in terms of, it's about truth and authenticity and like being really in touch with what your own truth is and, and honoring it always. Mm-hmm. And even when it comes into conflict with someone else's and being like, and both truths are okay. Mm-hmm. It's not that one is more right than the other, mm-hmm. but here they are. So now how do we find a way to coexist so that we both feel honored and respected within those truths? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like connected to what you're saying is also, it is hard for a lot of folks to know what they want, right? Sexually speaking. So, so sometimes uh, people find themselves in the position of saying yes, when they mean no, absolutely. Um, Because of all the, you know, social pressures that you're talking about and um, like relational currency, right? But other times it's, I don't know what I really want and this is what I've had and it's been okay. And so I I think we also as um, sex educators and people who think about sex a lot um, also need to more uh, make our language more complex, our stories more complex, right? I would like there to be more room for people to uh, name I don't know. Um, and I, I don't really like sex or I haven't had amazing sex or I've had it once and I don't expect it again. You know, all those realities, um, are common. Um, so there's, there, there's that, I think some of the consent, um, talk, um, assumes that there's always something I understand, a truth I know about myself. And it's about either I say it or I don't, right? I set my boundary or I don't. But the reality is that so often in sexual activity, like my mood changes. Um, What I like and what I enjoy is changing as we go. And, you know, if I'm happy with something, I could be unhappy with the same thing in the next moment, or I'm like hoping it'll change. Or Mm -hmm. when the song changes, I'm suddenly more into it. You know, like Mm -hmm. all those things are real. And I think um, we could talk about those more instead of only as like, when you want it, you deserve it. You know, to say no, you can say no. Um, 
so there's that piece. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about these ideas then now when it comes to communication about desire and about, you know, especially when it's with a partner. I think the consent conversation and everything, all of this becomes increasingly rich and complex, actually, when it's with trusted, intimate partners. Where there might be this assumption that what we're talking about is only about a new partner when it's casual and actually in some ways it's even harder when Mm -hmm. because and there's some expectation of that there should be some certain either certain things should be accepted or Mm -hmm. we care so much more the rejection Mm -hmm. means a whole lot more if it's from someone that we love Mm -hmm. so i'd love for you to just speak a little bit about the concept of rejection resilience as it comes into now sexual communication about sex that we are consenting to Mm -hmm. um speaking about desire and um yeah navigating intimacy and authenticity in partnerships yeah i think the idea of um uh letting multiple truths be coexistent is really important especially in intimate relationships because um then all the more is it important um, to actually tell the truth because there's more room and more time to tell the truth. So the truth about everything, including I, including you know, right off the bat, things that might be true, like I don't do that, I've never done that, I fear you seeing me like this, that's why I do that other thing right but so often the reality of relationships is that they're built on um certain things being concealed and and rightfully so and so in relationship it also means a series of reveals a series of revelations over time as i trust you more as i know you to be safe as i become braver as i decide you know who i might want to be in this 20 year relationship you know i hope that you know folks um, still feel like themselves growing and so forth. So there's always more of ourselves to reveal. And if we can assume that, that there are more revelations coming, I think it makes a better relationship. And so some of those revelations might be um, sexual rejections, right? The thing that I, we've enjoyed every Thursday, I'm thinking of not, you know, it's really feeling not, fun for me anymore how do we talk about that and so it it's very different in every relationship and so this is another thing that's very specific to longer term or more intimate or you know uh deeper relationships is like learning about how you do it in that relationship so some folks really truly will be uh wanting you to say stop it i don't like it Ugh. Um, and others will say, there's something I want to talk to you about. And it's really hard to talk about because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, and it's really important to be honest with you. Right. So some folks would hate that and some folks would love that. So I think we get into a little bit more craft. We get into a little bit more. Um, how do we do this as people in relationship and as people who are committed to knowing each other more and more. Mm. Um, And then there's also like future 
you know, so in this moment, there's a rejection, there's time for you to move away and be wounded and, and heal and so forth. And then there's a time for you to return. And then we, we revisit. That's not, you know, what we're talking about in, you know, hookups or, uh, when we're talking to a new partner. So the future tends, everything slowing down is more possible. Um, and so I think rejections can also be slowed down and mm -hmm. the, the things, and I can participate in your healing it because I am not only the person rejecting you. I'm also somebody who loves you and cares for you. I'm also somebody who helps you through hard times. Right. So, um, I think our roles expand, um, in those ways and allowing somebody to, to help take care of you when it's their rejection that's hurting you is one of the ways to deepen a relationship, one of the biggest ways. That's a question I wanted to ask you earlier is, is there an onus on the person who is doing the rejecting to hold space for the person that they've rejected? And maybe that depends on the relationship as you just yeah. said. I think it depends on the relationship and the thing. And, and the thing yeah. that's, yeah, sometimes for sure. And other times um, you need to get support from elsewhere. I can't be the person supporting. Yeah. Especially I think when it is not in a sort of committed partnership that it's important. You know, if you feel moved to hold space, then you can. And also you don't have to. Feels yeah. Like, yeah. Allowing yeah. someone their process and owning your own. Especially um, if you know that um, you tend to sort of um, get blurry around how they're feeling and how you're feeling. So if you tend to, you know, take on other people's feelings, right? Then it might be actually more important to just be clear and then let them take care of themselves and be kind and so forth but don't take it on right especially if you know that's the thing you tend to do so what about desire and communicating for what you want or you don't want what are some tools that you um give people or how do you you know i think it has the same it's in the same stew of topics that we're talking about where I'm thinking like, why is it so hard for people, for us to ask for what we want or to say, no, I don't like this. And, um, I think there's something about rejection in there. I think it's hard in a number of ways. One is back to the same, like you may not know you may what not know. you want to ask for. You might, you know, and it, I think a lot of times these things get talked about like, oh, there's that thing I want to try. You know, and many of the folks I work with are saying, there's nothing I want to try. That's the issue. <laughs> you know, there's not like a thing I've been, you know, having a hard time saying. Um, my issue might be like, I don't know. Is there a thing I should be wanting? Um, so sometimes it's that. Other times, of course, it's judgment. It's And judgment specifically linked to shame around, you know, sexual desire, around what turns you on, what turns you off. Um all the amazing uh, parts of imagination um, of somebody's inner workings, you know. So being fearful that I would be judged, that you might think I'm creepy, that I'm weird, that, you know, um, you don't get it. You thought we were like 
similar in all these ways. And then I reveal something about myself and then you have a freak out, right? I think these are some fears that people have. Um, and there's not really a lot of things to do around those things besides continuous like um, exploration, like continuous exploration, not necessarily only sexually, right? So watching documentaries about, let's say, disability, it can change how you have a conversation about perspective. Isn't it interesting what we consider ability versus disability? Isn't it interesting what's normal and what's not normal? I think often it's not um, specific to sex, but like it it's the culture of a relationship, right? Do we think weird things are bad? Um, do we think not knowing each other completely is scary? You know, so how, how do we develop the culture in our relationship um, beyond sexual topics that are actually full of curiosity and like when I'm scared that you're moving further away from me because the thing that you desire is not about me. How do I talk to you about how much I desire to be close to you and wish that, you know, I could fulfill everything and I can't and I don't, and that terrifies me. Right. So it is so often linked to other things that are not about talking about sex. And then I think it's also who people are in, you know, intimate relationships. We tap into a different parts of ourselves sometimes. Um, So then uh, the at least the many of the couples that I work with um, would say like when we were newer, we were really great sexual partners. And now we're good life partners, but sexually we're much less like exciting. And sometimes that's, you know, just changing of how much, um, you know, distance we have to travel metaphorically to get to each other. And so it's less exciting. Sometimes it's familiarity, but other times it's that, you know, we may not want to be that racy, exciting self with the person that we're uh, very deeply intimate and vulnerable with. That racy self might be easier to to be when I'm more mysterious to the other person, when mm-hmm. I can hold back a lot of other things. And so for me, it's often about making peace between those, those things. Like I'm not thinking that I need both of them to exist in one uh, connection to mean that it's a good one. Mm. You know, mm. so the, you know, the people that you love to go party with and, you know, have a great time with may not be the same people that you want to, you know, plant a garden with. Those things require very different connections. Mm. I'm wondering about your own journey into this work. Um, I've I've heard you say or acknowledge, you know, that you've gotten to this work because it's work that you needed for yourself or that it hasn't come naturally, which is also how I got into this work. And um, I'd love to hear just a little bit briefly about your upbringing and how you even first learned about sex and like what your initial exposure to and experiences were with it and how it's evolved since. What a great question. (laughs) It's not a usual question. Um, I, uh, I was a very, I was pained 
child, you know? So as a child, I think I was like quite um, sexually interested and uh, romantically interested. I remember thinking like at nine that I was like ready to like have a relationship, but then I was also queer without knowing that I was queer. I think, yeah, I, I, I was uh, very, um, I felt like I was stuck in like the wrong time, wrong body, wrong age, wrong, wrong gender, all of the above. And so I had so many desires and I had no, uh, outlets for them because it was not safe. Um, and so I think that actually deeply created um, a path for me because all I wanted was to be let out of the prison I had created for myself. And so it was so liberating to realize actually so many of the things that I thought were not possible, like saying out loud that I desire something or walking up to someone and say, I think you're beautiful and I can't get over it. Um, or uh, feeling okay to say to myself, like, you're sad. You're feeling very alone. Um, that all those things are possible and that the sky doesn't fall. And um, all the things that I thought would happen, like the sky falling literally or my family would fall apart and everyone would be angry with me. Um, all those things either didn't happen or they happen and they didn't kill me. Hmm. So, yeah, I think for me, it's always been a path of like liberating myself from this feeling of like, um, I'm alone and I can't. So that started with, you know, talking about sexuality, absolutely, but also talking about racism and talking about homophobia and transphobia. Um, finding language to talk about those things was amazing. Um, and then much later talking about feelings because, yeah, there's a lot to learn. <laughs> did How did your family, did they speak about sex with you at all when you were no. younger? No, no, <laughs> no sex. And like when somebody would kiss on screen, like I was to look away. Um, and I think I was maybe 12. And I remember sitting in the kitchen and Geraldo was on and a number of trans women were on there talking about being trans women. And my mom looked over at me and said, you're not like that, are you? And I was like, oh. no, no. <laughs> because I was also already uh, very genderqueer and androgynous and we had run into a lot of problems at school and also in the community of people like accosting my mother and say like, you have to raise your daughter better. Um, wow, where, where did you grow up? What was your- I grew up in a, in a suburb of Toronto um, on the edge of Mississauga, which was like a new development, sub-development. Um, yeah. And your family's from Hong Kong? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I grew up like a weirdo. Mm -hmm. And that's also been very liberating. How did they, or what is, what is your relationship with your parents like now and particularly around the work that you do? Um, 
uh, my relationship with him is pretty good. Um, we still don't talk about most things, which mm-hmm. is fine. Um, and they understand that I am an educator. And I think at some point, you know, when I was doing sexual health, they would say I was a health educator. Um, I, yeah, my mom would often say, you keep traveling to give talks, but what is there so much to talk about? And so that's sort of, yeah, I don't think they really understand what I do, but I don't think uh, their uh, care and attention for me is like in those kinds of details. They're more like into making sure that I change my winter tires. and. And so when you were growing up, I guess what was, maybe I just want to ask you two questions. One is, what were some of your earliest sexual experiences that you're open to sharing about? And then what was a later one that was maybe a pivotal shift or some outside influence that that maybe shifted your own relationship to how you communicate and to your relationship to your sexuality? Um, one of my earliest uh, memories of like a sexual experience was I think when I was three um, and I remember having a an incredible crush on one of my cousins, one of my um, girl cousins. And I just could not like sit still because I was so embarrassed whenever she was in the room and I could not look at her. And so I remember she had like come over to visit my parents and I ran laps and I jumped onto the the couch and I jumped off the couch and I ran the whole time that she was there and it was because I wanted I I just didn't know what to do with myself <laughs> and it was so clear that it was like like I I don't know I see I, I couldn't tell you what I wanted from her I just knew it was that I couldn't look at her face yeah um so that was I would have then many, many more experiences like that. Um, A pivotal moment. um, I remember having a lover uh, who was also a sex educator when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I remember um, one time she was like in the covers and she was like um, near my genitals. And then she came up out of the covers and she was holding her hand up and she had a glove on and she said, and looking at the glove, showing me the glove, she said, I think you have BV. <laughs> and I was, and that had never happened uh, for, you know, people who are listening, like bacterial vaginosis, uh, very common. And, you know, if you know it, you can tell by how it looks and how it smells and so forth. And that has just never happened to me until then. <laughs> that somebody would tell me and t- told me in such a matter of fact way. Right. But, and, and a glove on her, and, was, that oh, was a common practice for you then? Yeah. With she was, she was always using gloves. So I wasn't shocked about the glove, but I was shocked at the delivery. Why was she using gloves? I think she was just, um, like doing, she went to the nines. She would use gloves, she used dams, everything, mm-hmm. um, just as a latex barrier. Mm-hmm. But it was the coolest experience because I was like, should I feel embarrassed right now? Because nothing is set up for me to feel embarrassed. Uh, I'm needing a cue to like run to the bathroom in shame or something. But she had not given me any of that. And she was just like, look, 
look, I think you have BV. <laughs> I think. And then she's like, don't worry, because, you know, all you need is this, this and this. And I was just like, now back to business. Okay. Do you want to continue? She's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so it really normalized and neutralized something that I thought must be a terrifying experience. Totally. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) Would you tell Um, me a little bit also of your path to your work? Oh, flipping the interview on me. Um, Just because you, you said that it was similar, that you were you were also yeah. on your own journey. Yeah, well, I think just how I've referenced already, like, um, there was... Uh, my path just came from feeling both always very sexual and, like, very erotically alive and also not particularly safe in that both from how I like saw that that energy that I was putting out would come back at me and I wouldn't know how to handle it you know especially I moved to Argentina and I graduated from college and so I was dealing with the like Latin men and that machismo and um so there was a a feeling of never having learned to have these conversations and then later being like oh yeah because like no one learns how to have these conversations (laughs) and um feeling just really sexually dissatisfied for a really long time and thinking that it must mean that my body, there was something broken in mm. me or something wrong. Not that it was simply that I hadn't learned how to communicate and what I want or hadn't like mm-hmm. had a really deliberate self-pleasure exploration. Um, and so I think for me, it was both a quest for pleasure and also trying to like figure out my own body and then figure out like, that feeling of that I alluded to earlier of always feeling that there was some script that was the dominant culture when it came to sex that didn't feel good or didn't mm. feel right with me, but that I didn't think I had any agency to change and didn't have any of the tools to change it, even if I felt empowered to do so. Mm. And so um, I'd say it was once that through my own research of other people's work and a lot of conversations with a lot of women to be like, oh, that's pretty common. And the more I would sociologically and historically investigate why that was and all of the many sources from patriarchy and like our history and just, um, you know, like what what it was like to be a teenager in Long Island and like what sex ed was like or not like and Mm -hmm. all of these dynamics um, that just led me to be wanting to have conversations about it so that uh, because it seems like such a profound part of our lives and I it later became more of a spiritual quest too because I think pleasure and sex is it's just so connected there's a whole verticality to that self-connection and that there's mm-hmm. a divine connection there too. And so it kind of angered me that that mm-hmm. was so ruptured and broken and in our society when in fact it's like the most fundamental essence of what it is to be alive and to be human and to be able to continue <laughs> like humanity. And yeah. so, um, and then I see how many aspects, the more I, the more conversations I have and the more self-reflection like how much it all connects to everything outside of sex, right? So we're talking about rejection resilience and it's like, yeah, if I, the more I can strengthen that muscle within my intimate relationships, that also is me strengthening my authenticity in the world and my yeah. feeling um, 
feeling entitled in a healthy way to like my own desires and not, you know, learning or deconditioning whatever self-denial I have learned. Mm. So that's sort of my mm. all in a nutshell. That's what a, such a this path. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it with me. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I know I've at some point thought somebody should interview me so I could just get all of this out on the show. People can know. I think that would be a great show. <laughs> who, who this is. Yeah. I know I'm gearing up. It's much easier to ask the questions than to <laughs> share right. vulnerably. Um, but yeah, thank you for asking. Um, well, the last thing I was going to ask you is just on that note of here we are, it's pretty appropriate now, is I, because I also see how many conversations I'm having around this and yet how it continues to be stuff I have to navigate and feel really sloppy about in my own intimate relationships. And so I'm curious how your work has informed your personal life and if you ever feel barriers to practicing what you preach and what what helps you break through them, if any. Mm. Um. I always feel barriers, um, which is why I think, which is how I even learned mm -hmm. what I preach. Mm -hmm. um, and I struggle. I, I have sometimes like for moments forget that you're allowed to um, know something, but not be perfect at doing it. And then I remember, I'm like, right, that's actually the only kinds of things I know. <laughs> so I must be allowed. Um, what helps, actually, what helps is actually talking about it. What helps is um, sharing and teaching. Um, because in doing that, people's feedback um, and also by trying to explain something, I understand something more. Mm. So that helps. Um, having a therapist helps. <laughs> um, having people that in my life that I can talk to um, helps. Um, practicing helps. So, mm. you know, like the rejection resilience is... Um, I really relate to that um, as a challenge. You know, I, it wasn't that long ago that I felt so much guilt for asking for anything. Even, you know, if I'm just like at a restaurant and I would like someone to bring me some lemon totally. and I'm creating a huge story like, oh, this person is making minimum wage and they don't want to. And the last thing, you know, they need is to bring you a fucking lemon. So shut up. You know, I have this big, long story about it. Um, and so my practice is to ask for it and then to receive it, right? And to, to instead of uh, feeling sorry all the time, um, to say thank you when I receive what I ask for um, and to allow that person to, you know, they could get pissy about it. They could be like, one more person asked me for a lemon, great. Or they could be like, that's awesome. I love lemon too. Happy to get it, right? But allow it to happen. So practicing helps um, and feeling like a learner helps. I rarely actually feel pressure to be very good at 
living my life. Um, I feel pressure sometimes at like being an educator and, and helping folks live their lives. But yeah, the, but I will tell you something that I'm working on is like feeling more, um, aligned, um, inside and out. Mm. So, um, yeah, like telling my truth, like telling the truth about myself. Right. And so and to yourself, to myself and to anyone that helps. Well, here's to your alignment, to all of our self alignment and Likewise. being able to communicate ever more authentically. Thank you. If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes. Stay sexy, folks.